0: Every magic trick consists of three parts, or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. Welcome to filmstrip. The second act
1: is called the turn. But you wouldn't clap yet. Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick The we Prestige
0: Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. This is our review of The Prestige starring Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, David Bowie and Michael Caine. Directed by Christopher Nolan, released in October 2006 on a budget of $40 million, grossed over $109 million at the box office. And I would venture to say The Prestige is probably the better known of the two between it and The Illusionist. Would you agree?
1: Definitely the better known, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, whether it's the better film or not, I guess that's what we'll answer as we get into the review here. But, you know, now I did not see this when it first came out. I know I had seen it before. I ended up waiting on this for video, and uh, I had always wished I had seen it in theaters afterward. It it was the kind of thing um, that I wish I had seen. And it's not because there's just visuals that are going to blow my mind or stuff, but I'm one of those guys that likes dramas, and Mm -hmm. I like dramas on the big screen. There's just something about them in, you know, that larger than life. aspect that uh, I don't know has always appealed to me and so I wish I would seen this in the theater but I did not I saw it on um, your know, home uh, video at first
1: uh, yeah I saw this film actually in the theaters uh, Yeah, when it came out in 2006 probably that weekend on the Saturday and yeah I mean we'll definitely get into it but it was different I mean it was not uh, I don't know what I was expecting but uh, not what I got
0: yeah, I, I was going to ask you. You know, you're you're a little bit younger than me. In 2006, you would have been what in high school?
1: Oh yeah, I was right in the high school.
0: Yeah, see, so I, I was already out of college and married and all kinds of. So I mean, it's just a different perspective. I don't know what you know how this film would appeal to you. You know, like that's that's the curious part to hmm. me because no one films in particular are a different breed. Like you either have to, you know, be in the business or interested in it on on a high level to go for his stuff if you're much younger than I would say, you know, 17 or 18 cuz so much of his stuff is so mature and it's also borrowing from things that you just don't learn about until later in life but now this would have been on the heels of Batman and Batman Begins and I did see that in the theaters and I don't want to turn this into a review of that because we've already done that yeah. but I remember you know, only knowing Memento beforehand and seeing Batman Begins and thought they handed that to the Memento guy and then when I saw what he did with it I thought oh this is amazing and then I remember the trailers for this and going oh I guess he's just he's just going to cast Bale and everything now
1: you yeah. know?
0: and that was was, that was kind of my impression of it and I, I didn't as I said didn't see it and then ended up uh, renting it later and going wow what a what a very neat film but it is I don't know that it's something that would appeal to um, the same crowd that went for Batman begins
1: no I don't think it's for that I mean there's there's nothing in this movie for anyone under uh, under 12 or even under uh, 15 uh, I definitely saw it uh for. The fact that it was it was it was Chris Nolan, you know, he just made Batman Begins. Couldn't love that movie more. It's Christopher Nolan, Christian Bale's in it, and Michael Caine. And uh, I thought, you know, I I, did, I could care less what it was about. All I knew is that those ingredients, I'm gonna go see it.
0: Right. And Michael Caine, for me, is an old one. I've, I've watched his stuff you know, for years and have gone back and watched a lot of his stuff from the 70s and things. He's just a, a great character to have in your show. And I think he serves in a lot of ways as a good... I don't know how he plays a lot of the mentor roles in Nolan yeah. films and he in some ways he's the narrator I mean that's really his role here uh, I felt like he did a lot of that in inception too I mean the guy just just does fantastic work and I think Nolan is one of those guys that gets a lot out of him for what he can do and I would say that about Christian Bale too I you know I've only seen Bale in A scattered number of things, but I've always felt like his best performances were when Nolan was behind the camera. And I know he won an Oscar for David Russell and the fighter, but uh, I really, uh, you know, to me, I think the subject matter there was so great that it was hard not to uh, reward him for it. But uh, to me, he's always done well when uh, Nolan is there. But I'll say this, the, the curious part to me about this and going into it again for this retrospective was I didn't remember much about Hugh Jackman's performance. And it's hard for me not to think of Hugh Jackman in one of two lights, one, either as Caden Leopold, which I will blame squarely on my <laughs> wife or as Wolverine. Right. I mean, that's no. what he is to, you know, generations of people now. And I will just tip my hand a little bit here. I was pleasantly surprised with the performance that he gave. I don't know that Jackman's ever been better.
1: Uh, yeah, that's another thing is, uh, the Chris Nolan, you know, Christian Bale together, Batman factor is why I saw it. But I think, looking back, the even bigger factor was the fact that we got Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman in the same movie, my two favorite superheroes in the same film. Uh, and yeah, Hugh Jackman in the film, I think this is his best performance. Uh, I might say just altogether. I want to say Wolverine is his best role, but probably this is his best performance. It's a The way this character goes, the way he's, like, he starts off as charming, but when you break it down where this guy goes, he is truly, they're both, both the characters, Christian Bell and Hugh Jackman play are pretty despicable in the end, but Jackman's character, I mean, the stuff he does, it's like, this guy is, goes from being likable to this guy is evil. And it's a, yeah, it is a great performance.
0: Oh, it's an amazing arc. And I, I agree. I mean, this is going to be one of the things we can talk about here. This one's a little different. Like, I don't know that this film lends itself to a linear review. I think we're better off to blow it all in the, in the summary and then just hit hmm. on the highlights of the things. Cause it, it works in such a strange format. I mean, you're flashing back and forth in it and it, you're cutting into that of these people's lives from time to time. And I do think there's a, a an underlying, uh, a, analog here too that we'll get into but i I guess uh, before we go any further kurt if you would please give us a plot summary tell us what the prestige is about
1: sure now the prestige rupert angier played by hugh jackman and alfred borden played by christian bale are london-based apprentice magicians in the late 1800s when angier's wife accidentally dies during a performance he blames borden fading the two rivals as As enemies who both become famous and sabotage the other's performances on stage. Borden develops a trick called the transported man and Angier goes through great lengths to duplicate and even steal it from his rival. He even enlists the aid of eccentric inventor Nikolai Tesla in the scheme. In the end we learn that Borden has a twin and lives the act even at home with his wife and child. He and the twins switch places often, with one portraying the other's assistant named Fallon. The machine that Tesla builds for Angier turns out to be a cloning machine, which transports the clone in the process. So each night, Angier uses the machine on stage. He is actually cloning himself when the copy falling through. We do that one again. With the copy falling through the trap door into a water tank and drowning. Angier uses this to frame Borden for his murder. Angier thinks he is succeeding. Angier thinks he succeeded in taking everything from Borden as he set out to do. But when the Borden Fallon twin is hanged for the crime, the other returns to shoot Angier, setting fire to his dead body and the duplicating machine.
0: That's a good summary for what we see here. And one thing I want to talk about right off the top. We talked about last time that. The the overview or the really the underlying thing you had to keep in mind about everything we saw, and we had a good discussion about it, was that everything was indeed a trick, an illusion. It wasn't real. There wasn't real magic. There wasn't summoning the dead, all this stuff. That is not the case here. We see some flat-out real magic, if you will, in the form of the science that's performed by Tesla, but we see something that is very fantastical. Uh, shall we say this whole cloning machine? And I think that's one of the big differences between those two films. The other one existed in a world where you had to suspend disbelief, but you could see it unfolding. And this one exists in a world where
1: you're really being told something that's—you just have to swallow it and believe it, right? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. The Illusionist, as we as we said, is kind of like it's. Very unclear. Is there certain elements of fantasy we're actually seeing, or is this 100% you know machinations of this uh, illusionist, and it's all you know technical, and you can explain it? The Prestige starts off as literally about you know magicians doing tricks and doing them well, and then all of a sudden, the big twist is all of a sudden is that the film has become a science fiction film. That out of nowhere we get this machine that just happened. We think it's just going to be used to make sparks. And do some you know cool looking stuff, and it turns out Nikolai Tesla developed a machine that clones you and sends the clone 20 feet, uh, eight degrees uh, in that direction. I love the specificity of that machine. That that's what it does. Didn't plan on it, but you know that's what it does, and that becomes the you know probably the most important part of the whole movie eventually.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it, it is a different uh, it's a different setup completely. I mean, as, as films that are based on written works that were about magicians from roughly the same time period. That's really the only similarities, you know, in our doppelganger here. I mean, these are vastly different films that and the, the, the rivalry between two you know a couple of men uh, and, but it doesn't necessarily center around a woman or the level of a woman or the bringing down of one's power it's really just jealousy right and i don't know what you know about it uh kurt I almost called you nick and and anna and everybody else there for a second <laughs> i don't know what you know about it kurt but to me the the thing you have to know a little bit about to really understand what i believe nolan is more interested in telling here is the story of nikolai tesla and thomas edison because in my mind i think he's way more interested in the rivalry of those two men than he is you know a story about a couple magicians and that he and his brother took this book and adapted it around their ideas about tesla and edison
1: yeah uh that was something that really uh i really did like about the film and the more i watch it the more i like it uh is When all of a sudden they started mentioning Thomas Edison in the film, the first time I saw it, it was like, oh, yeah, this is around the same time as Thomas Edison. And the idea that Nikolai Tesla and Edison were around around at the same time, I thought that Nolan made up the idea that they were rivals, that they were literally sabotaging each other. And then I found out, no, 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 that was actually the case, that these two guys hated each other and uh, were often competing to create the more efficient... uh, Inventions and energy sources and so on. And uh, that parallel between those two guys and our guys, Angier and Borden, that was – the more I uh, understand that and the way it plays out in the movie is I think it's a a unique uh, parallel.
0: Oh, yeah, I – I totally agree. I mean, it's a fascinating story, folks, if you've never read much about it. And not to get too lost into it here, but Tesla came over to this world and had worked for one of Edison's companies in France. And he, he came here and went to work for Edison, and he essentially... The way he tells it, or the way his, his story is, is that Edison told him, if you can redesign my machines and make them run more efficiently, there's $50,000 in it for you. People from Edison's side would say he would never say something like that. The man was cheap, notoriously, through you know his whole life. Everybody knew that. So Tesla does it does, does this grand engineering for him and then ask him where's my you know my money and edison said well you, you just misunderstood it that's american humor and of course they split and <laughs> you know he went to work for westinghouse and it goes on and on and on and if you you know i'll i'll admit now cop to it the the first way i was you know introduced to this wasn't in history class it wasn't in school it's because i was a fan of the 80s rock band tesla <laughs> and i wanted to know <laughs> what kind of name that was. And then the funny thing is, is they've got probably a dozen songs throughout their catalog that are about that <laughs> rivalry. <laughs> and so, and of course they clearly were on Tesla's side uh, <laughs> through it, but I am, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of, and really we can talk about the Tesla character. characters. He pops up in just a few spots here, played by David Bowie that, he's almost as if someone who is, he's lived the rivalry that Angier and Borden have. And even though he's employed by Angier, he keeps warning him. If you continue down this road, if you continue wanting to do this, you're only going to destroy yourself. You know, and that's the idea. And I don't know. I liked that. I liked, the the introduction of a historical character into a fictional setting. like it, That's very rarely done well, but when it is, it, it always makes an impression on me. There's a, a historical fiction novel by Harry Turtledove called The Guns of the South, and if you grew up in the South and you know about the Civil War and things, this is one that will hit home to you. Uh, it's all about these uh, South African apartheidists who invent a time machine and travel back and they arm the Confederate Army with the AK-47s. That's, I mean, really, the only way I can explain it is the cover of the book is the famous portrait of Robert E. Lee standing, but instead of his hand by his side, he's holding an AK-47. So just imagine, you know, <laughs> where that could go. And that can yeah. be done really badly and be horrible sci-fi, you know, channel entertainment, or it can be really, really good. And this is one of those examples, kind of like the turtle book, that I think it's done really well and works really well for the characters
1: yeah uh yeah I can't think of too many other movies where they just insert actual historical figures into a into a genre setting and and don't not poking fun in any way I mean, it's one thing for Hitler to show up in Last Crusade for a joke, but this one kind of you know it's i mean obviously it's pure fiction, but it puts forth the idea no Nik- Nikola Tesla could design something like this this movie really I had never heard of Nikola Tesla before seeing this movie i heard I heard of the Tesla coil. I didn't know what that was. This movie showed me what a Tesla coil was and what Tesla was probably like, and it made him a very interesting figure. Uh, And especially, you know, the way David, all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) I just think it's so great that of all the people in the world you get to play Nikola Tesla, they cast David Bowie, (laughs) and and he is very good, very strange and bizarre. You can't place where he's from. It's just. You know, I mean, it, you, you need someone to play a weird guy, you get David Bowie. And, uh, yeah, yeah he, he nailed it.
0: Yeah, he can play just the, the an alien. You know, because he yeah. kind of is one, and apparently he turned it down several times. It took Nolan flying to meet him once and selling him on it in person for him to finally yeah. get along with it, which I think is is a great story. Uh, but and I, you know, I, again, I think that's that's the story. Nolan t- tends to do these things when he's working on something, particularly outside of the Batman franchise. And I think even inside of that, when he does a little bit of this, that that's a little more tied to something else. So he was, you know, he had he had things to root to there when he does films that he just does like you know, inception this uh, even a remake like insomnia and even memento there's clearly something he is trying to mirror that is very real in one way or another and he's using these fictional settings to do it and sometimes he'll involve real people that were there to help tell that story now it just works really well here and bowie sells a lot of it too but really though this story is about our two leads Angier and Borden Fallon, if you will, Bale and Jackman. And I guess let's start talking about Hugh Jackman here as Rupert Angier, this this character. You mentioned in the opening there that he's somebody you want to root for, and we just sort of watch him morally degrade throughout the entire story.
1: Oh, yeah. uh, what, when What comes to mind immediately when talking about him, you know, his arc is when, you know, he's obviously going after Borden, You know, as revenge for his wife, and at one point he gets a hold of Borden's notebook that Scarlett Johansson's character has given him, and uh, she's trying to tell him, look, just, you know, forget about it. I mean, I can't remember the exact line, but some like, you know, you know, I mean, think about your wife. And he says, "I don't care about my wife. I care about his secret." And you can see himself. You know, he catches himself like, "I can't believe I just said that." But that's the turn when he really, uh, he's made the shift where he, you know, he cares more about the revenge itself than, you know, why he got into it in the first place. And, of course, after that scene, you know, timeline-wise is where he goes to America to find Tesla and, you know, get a hold of that machine. And, yeah, he, uh, like I said, yeah, he makes a hell of a, you know, turn in this movie. And, yeah, I mean, like, for Hugh Jackman to play a character this, you know, nasty, I mean, he I don't think he's played a a character like this uh, before or since.
0: and and can I tell you that's a shame because I think the word that I came up with that he was playing here was sinister. He's so good at sinister because he is such a nice likable presence and you don't want to think that he's capable of of, you know saying things like I don't care about my wife I just want the trick and things like that but he becomes a man obsessed and I mean and that's one of the things we've got to note is that he's an aristocrat. As it turns out he's like a lord over an area so he's very wealthy, politically connected, and Angier is just a, a stage name so he doesn't embarrass his family with this crazy hobby he's got. Hmm. But he just keeps on it, and he is so relentless that he must be the best, that he must have the you know the biggest and, and most well-known uh, tricks and things, that he will do anything to stop this man that he blames for the death of his wife. And I guess we can talk about that. That's Piper Perbo in a a bit of a thankless role here as his wife, she plays Julia. And his original sort of finishing trick is she drops into a tank of water and he's able to get her out or something like that. And somehow or another, the locks malfunction and she winds up drowning on stage, which is, of course, tragic. Now, let me ask you, you know, he blames Borden for setting it up wrong. Do you think that's the case or did, was it really an accident?
1: I don't think Borden was doing anything to try and kill the, the wife. I think he was trying to, he thought was trying to tie a knot around her hands that would, uh, hold tighter, look more believable. So people in the audience wouldn't think, Hey, that's a, you know, that knot's going to slip really easily. So, and it just, it, you know, totally screwed up. Uh, I don't think Borden was trying to, uh, hurt anyone. It really was a tragic accident. See, I agree with that because on the flip side of it, and
0: it's a way to talk about Borden now, he is just like a working class guy who takes up uh, this magic show and these magic acts and starts doing this, but he's, he's he achieves wealth and fame because of it, but nowhere near what Angier's got in resources. And I think in some way, that's one of the things that bugs Angier is that who is this little peasant has you know, stepped into my world and things like that. Did you get it that way?
1: Uh, I did. And that's some, uh, that, uh, Cutter, uh, Michael Caine's character points out is, uh, you, you see Christian Bale doing the tricks. You can see he's not putting any, uh, showmanship into it at all he's doing yeah. the tricks very well as and kane says you know he's a wonderful magician he's a terrible showman and that's something that i think uh that uh angier doesn't like is that you know this guy you know he's he's like he's just lo- he's watching angier's watching board and think man i could do that so much better it's like yeah that that element of rivalry is uh is great
0: it's the idea that like it he, he's he got all of the tools, but he has none of the ability to sell it. You know, he just does it and boom, he walks off the stage and there's no show to it. And Angier is all show. In a lot of ways, that's really all he's got is that he's got such resources. He can put on a grand show, but his illusions are, eh, they're okay, but they're not great, right? They're not going to, they yeah. wouldn't, they wouldn't be selling out Showtime, you know, specials or anything like that. No. That have been around in the day. But uh, but on the other hand, this Borden character has all of this ingenuity and these great ideas, but he doesn't have any way of selling it. Or at least that's what Angier says. You know, I I wonder too if that's not. Uh, somewhat clouded by the fact that, you know, Cutter works for Angier, and up until the very end, he's loyal to him. If they, you you know, your right-hand man will always back you up and say, hey, hey, no, we do it better. Yeah, we do it better. You know what I mean? Like if maybe they were downplaying it some to make themselves feel better about their own show.
1: Yeah, that comes across. I was watching just a little bit of it uh, today, and I noticed the scene where they're they're going to look at the – Chinese magician to figure out his trick, the way they're talking with each other, I got the sense, oh man, if, if these guys actually put their heads together, they'd be so much better than how uh, how it ends up. Because you can tell these guys are very simpatico in the way they think. It just so happens that, you know, events, you know, uh, set them against each other. But you get the sense, these two, you know, if they put their heads together, you know, uh, Angier's Showmanship, Borden's technique, they would create the greatest magic act of all time instead of what happens where, you know... They and, both and, that, end up. and again, there you go. There's the Edison and
0: Tesla analogy. Again, with obviously Borden is Tesla and then uh, Edison would be Angier, and yep. if they, if you could have ever, you know, when they were together, they did amazing stuff for the short time they were. If you could have ever gotten them back in the same room to work together, you know, the possibilities are endless. But, you know, on the other hand, Kurt, sometimes, you know, we think that's a great Combination, and then it's it just doesn't work. You know, sometimes there's too much genius in the room. I mean, you know, there's a reason uh, Jimmy Page and John Lennon never hooked up to try to have a band in the you know late you know, <laughs> '70s or something. I mean, yeah. they're they're great, but they kind of do different stuff. <laughs> and, that, and that's that's the part that gets glossed over in some of this. But I don't know. I I thought that was it was an interesting way to set up these characters, though, is, is a lot of it. Again, is told in flashback because that I mean, the film opens up with this. Uh, Angier fellow trying to decipher this um, book that's been stolen from from Borden and having no idea what to do, and then we you know we find out an hour later how he got it. You know, see I mean, this is yeah. typical Nolan stuff. You have to pay attention, and this is definitely one that if you're gonna you're gonna watch it and invest in it, it's you're gonna have to make more than one run at it. I, I watched <laughs> it twice for this review uh, just to make sure I I thought I had it all down, and I'm not sure I had it
1: all. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nolan, I just. I couldn't be a bigger fan of Nolan, and I love how he cuts his movies together. I mean, Memento is, you know, the movie, you know, changes the form on how to tell a story on film. Uh, And Batman begins the way it goes back and forth. The first 45 minutes is constant, cutting back and forth between all these different time periods. Uh, And then all of a sudden, you know, the second half is all linear. The prestige is constantly going back and forth. Uh, Inception was constantly going back and forth between five different locations and flashbacks. He, I really, I really hope one of his movies wins an Oscar for editing already, because uh, he just no one assembles a movie like him. And I also think I would hate to have written this film. I can't find any information on if the movie was written the way it was cut or however. I just know that whatever it is, it must have been. In- Either. It must have been incredibly difficult. I would not have wanted to edit this film.
0: Oh, I, I agree, and that, that we need to call that guy out right now, Lee Smith, who yeah. has worked on stuff like the Truman Show. You and I'll get around to that one later on in this series. And he did, of course, he's done Nolan stuff, Batman Begins, Dark Knight. He did Inception. He did Dark Knight Rises. He even cut together X Men First Class, which I thought was yeah. just wonderful. Been working for years as a as a fabulous editor, but I'm with you. I I would love to get my hands on a copy of the script. And see how it was how it was constructed, or if, like you say, all of this was done on the back end, you know. And I happen to think it probably was the other way. The, the story is the story, and then they cut it together in a way to make it interesting, as only Nolan can see things, you know, along with his brother and his his wife, his producer, as they understand stuff. I don't know. I, I, that's a that's a good point. But another thing too, we got to call it out. Wally Pfister, the cinematography. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, he does Nolan stuff. And I know Nolan spends a lot of time behind the camera. He's like Ridley in that way. But you, you got to put a lot of this on the eyes of Wally Fister. He just understands how to take scenery and make it a part of the story organically. Like it doesn't have to be a ton of CGI fakery and stuff. And there's a lot of CGI in this, but there's a whole lot of practical around it, too. And I, I just thought it looked really great.
1: Yeah, Wally Pfister, he is like he's in the top three cinematographers right now. Uh, I think I don't know if he's still. I think he might have severed his relationship with uh, Nolan because he's going on to direct his own films. Right, and that's a damn shame because look at all of Nolan's films from. Uh, I think yeah, he even did he did Memento. Everything from Memento to Dark Knight Rises. More often than not, those are the best looking films of the year especially inception and the dark night rises where it's just what this guy can do with an IMAX camera is unreal. And yeah, the way Wally Fisher shoots, the way he does, everything has like a, I, I don't know how to put it into words, but the way he does dark looking scenes, nighttime scenes, I mean, the dark night, all the scenes set at night and in dark alleys and stuff, it just looks different. It, I, I, there's not, nothing else that looks like that certain clarity of image too. Uh, Fantastic, he's one of the best.
0: I think it's one of the things that makes this another one of the things I should say that makes this stand out from The Illusionist. The Illusionist looked like it was shot in sepia tones, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. And, and it worked. That aesthetic worked for that film, particularly for me, I liked it. But if this one had tried to do that, it would it would have felt really odd and it would have been different. This is a, it's such a very clean image so many times, but it's also very natural. Like it doesn't feel like it's lit in ways that wouldn't have existed in 1880. Yeah, and that's what I really appreciate about it, is the authenticity of it.
1: Oh yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, illusionist almost has that look of like as though they went back in time and shot it in the eighteen hundreds. This one very much looks like a two thousand and six film, so it's not necessarily timeless in that sense. But uh, but uh, yeah, it looks fantastic.
0: It does, and it's a good time to talk about Borden a little bit more and, and Christian Bale. I, mm. I got to tell you, I, I think Bale was the best Batman, the best Bruce Wayne we've had. I think he's a genius actor. He's really good. I've never seen him anything I didn't like him in. I liked him in American yeah. Psycho, and that's a very weird film, and yeah. you know, all these other things he's done. But I want to tell you, he just went to town in this for me. I I was watching him just chew up the scenery and the way he flips the personality and I couldn't remember the twist of it watching it this time Nick and I kept going, what that what's the thing? What is it? And then now knowing it when you know the secret that he has a twin. The way he plays those men, instead of being Jekyll and Hyde, they're very <laughs> subtle difference. You know, one of them is definitely more sinister than the other, or a little rougher I guess you'd say than the other. But they're the same guy. And, they just, and it, it's wonderful to watch him flip back and forth between them. And I have a hard time, and I'm sure somebody out there on the Internet is cataloging, it, of when, who is who. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I think that's one of the games you can play watching this is which one are you watching in, at different times with the wife and the kid and with, you know, Angier uh, and who's on stage when and who pulls this prank and does this. I don't know. I, I thought that was fabulous to look at.
1: Yeah, Christian Bale in this movie. I love him in this movie. I also noticed I'm not sure. This might be the only movie the only movie I've ever seen Christian Bale in where he actually is playing uh, a British character. Right. Yeah, used, he uses his natural accent. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so strange. You look at all of his movies, he's playing an American. Like and he, and he plays different American accents wonderfully. You know, his Oscar-winning performance in The Fighter. He nails that Massachusetts accent. And here he gets to just use his regular voice. And almost for that reason, I can almost sense... It, it just feels like a better performance from him. And uh, he's fantastic. And yeah, the twist of this film that all of a sudden you find out that Fallon and Borden are the are twins. That one is the other. And that they constantly switch. That was one of my. That's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Is when Ang- Angier asks him, "So who was who? Who was the man in the you know? Who was the which one of you was the prestige?" And he just smiles. He says, oh, we took turns," and that <laughs> made me happy. It's like they're not like you know. It, it's not like it'd be it'd be really depressing if he said no. He was fouling the whole time. It's like no, they just switched it up for a variety, if for no other reason. Yeah, and, it, there was never a, a Montana and Steve
0: Young. They were you know they were the same guy at either time. Yeah. And in everything, that's the thing that blows my mind, is that everything, they lived the life. You know, one would be with the wife, one would be with the other's girlfriend, one would be in the bar, one would be at home. You know, that's just amazing. And, you know, if this film is about anything, it's about the resolve of intelligent men who rival with one another. Right, and what they will go through and one man compromises himself to the end that it ultimately costs him his life. That would be Angier. And what we find out is that Borden has also done that too and, and paid probably even a a steeper price. You know, I mean one of them died. And what I want to know is which one died? Hmm. You know, it's I don't know that it's answered. I don't know that we know who shoots Angier in the end and which one was hung.
1: Uh well uh I should have written it down. But I think at the very end, uh, the Borden that is talking to Angier in Angier's lab says, "Which one of them loved the daughter, and which one of them loved the wife?"
0: Yeah, Borden and, uh, Borden loved Olivia. Fallon loved the the wife who hung herself.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, I lost my head. train of thought.
0: Sorry, I was asking which one was which when I was you know I knew that, but I it, in the end I wasn't sure who was saying that to him.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, damn, I should have written it down. Anyway,
0: that's fine. We'll, we'll move on with that. Well, you know, that's the thing though. I, I mean, in the, the character there is so, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's sad, but in the end, like you, you find yourself, or at least I found myself rooting for the Christian Bale character throughout this. Cause he was the one that came by the trick. Honestly, he, he, he. Did it himself, you know. He took what the the Chinese were doing and he perfected it, and he had his own deal, and he wasn't going through extreme motions, much less he wasn't killing people, you know, yeah. or himself nightly to try and you know perform this this uh, you know, disappearing man trick, if you will, a transporting man trick. And I don't know. I, I thought that was I don't know. It just made it it made him more sympathetic in my book than Angier
1: yeah uh watching it last time i noticed i was like keeping a tally of how many you know of the damage each of these guys is doing and i looked at it borden doesn't he hurts one person in uh, when he's when he messes up the bird trick and he, you know he breaks right. the cage and he snaps that woman's fingers that's pretty bad but he doesn't kill anyone but borden he just wants to sabotage angier's tricks to screw with him uh you know revenge for him blowing his fingers off and so on Angier, buries fallon alive uh he's like that's him getting his hand like he can just get his hands dirty uh he's more willing to get his hands dirty than than borden or fallon uh yeah and borden in the end he doesn't kill anyone and angier kills several people uh well but, well he kills angier i he mean he kills that, angier yeah. yeah
0: so which apparently cutter knows about and i wouldn't be surprised if he didn't set up when it's all said and done but yeah i'm with you no you're right Angier kills you know dozens including the clones of himself uh, which is a whole other discussion for another Philip K. Dick retrospective day. <laughs> uh, that's, that's another you mentioned sci-fi, and I, that's what I thought too. I was like, man, in another life Philip K. Dick probably dreamed this up. You know, cause <laughs> this is his kind of story. I mean, it really feels that way. And I haven't yeah. read the source book. I kind of want to now to see if if it's anything like this or how much of it's the Nolans. You know, who are definitely uh, Dick uh, followers in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, I, it's a, it's an amazing twist that these guys go through. But in the end, Borden and Fowler. Fallon have the things that they're passionate about, and the thing that I got was that Angier kept trying to screw up Fallon's tricks uh, because, or Borden and Fallon's tricks, because he wanted revenge for the death of his wife, and then he wanted what they had in terms of uh, prestige and you know, notoriety when he had all the showmanship. And all Borden wanted him to do was just do your own show, man. And let me have mine. You stop stealing my records. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he wouldn't do it. He couldn't let it go. And that to me, I don't know, was fascinating to watch.
1: Oh yeah, uh, yeah, the, 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 yeah. The the rivalry between these two guys is is at the same time tragic and dark, and yet a certain element of uh, of fun when they're trying. It's it's a series of these two guys trying to one up each other, uh, and that is one of my favorite moments in the film where. Borden sabotages Angier's original transported man trick involving the trap door and the other and the double coming up from, this, from the from the from the from the uh, underneath the stage and comes up and that is one of my favorite scenes of Christian Bale's career. The way uh Christian Bale walks through the door and is totally playing it uh, as a perfect showman. The way he like he plays out the idea that like you know he's walked through the wrong door and tries to walk back in to the door. He just came in through, uh, and everything he does, like he set up Angier's double hanging from the ceiling. Uh, and all of that, the, that, that scene is almost my favorite Christian Bale scene. The, the like the character is a, is supposed to be a bad showman. Then we realized actually, no, he's actually picked up some stuff and he's a great showman. I've never seen Christian Bale, anytime he has to do stuff like that in front of an audience, I think of his drunks, the, the fake drunk scene in, in and <laughs> Batman begins. Yes. Uh, he's fantastic. Whenever he has to act, act, whenever he has to, I don't want to say overact, but whenever he has to go big, he's fantastic. And that's, you know, that's, that's a great scene. Well, you know, the, him, some actors go big,
0: and it just becomes so ridiculous that you enjoy watching them be ridiculous. Christian Bale going big—you can, you love the nuances of it. Like if you, I don't know if you've seen American Psycho or not, that whole movie is him going big. One of my favorite scenes in yeah. that is he's sitting around a table with his business colleagues, and they're all like comparing the, the <laughs> lettering on their business. And it's, I mean, it is the weirdest pissing contest I've ever seen, oh, yeah. you know, but it is fabulous to watch him sit there and break out in a cold sweat, you know, of jealousy, <laughs> anger, and uh, everything. And that voiceover and all that stuff. Bale can do that. He can do crazy, which is why he was a great Batman. Because oh, he, yeah. I mean, you got to understand, Bruce Wayne is psychotic. <laughs> I mean, that's part of his, his whole uh, bent to do what he does. And I think Bale understood that. And I I would, it's nowhere written, but I would believe that the fact that he was able to pull off that fake drunk scene in Batman begins is one of the many reasons that Nolan wanted him for this because he knew he could handle it, you know, and and he did really well with it. And, you know, we haven't talked about it either. There's a very small portion of the film where, um, Hugh Jackman, they find a a lookalike for him, yeah. but it's just Hugh Jackman acting like he's drunk all the yeah. time, and he's he's great at that too. It's much more comedic; it's a lot funnier than Bale. But I thought he did a really good job playing the other side of it for a few moments
1: too. Yeah, that's that's a weird bit of acting there. Great performance <laughs> by Hugh Jackman, but it's like it's so strange. He's playing, he's trying to look like a Hugh Jackman lookalike, and it's very bizarre because. I almost want to think there's some CG in there because, like, it looks like a Hugh Jackman lookalike. It doesn't look exactly like Hugh Jackman, like just the, the way his face is shaped. I don't know how he did it. I think Hugh Jackman maybe is just that good an actor. But, yeah, that is a great dual uh, role. I mean, all of a sudden he plays his own comic relief in this. Oh, it's, it's weird. <laughs> I
0: would lay a lot of that on Wally Fister and really Nolan, but also Fister in the way that you just light it and shoot it and do the makeup, you can make one person look like a completely different one, just in the way you set it. Well, look, think about Bale when he's in the Batman costume. I mean, you know that's Bale, but he does his face a different way. And it's part of it's the way it gets pushed out in front of that mask and stuff. But it's a decent facsimile enough that you could realize that not everybody would figure out that's Bruce Wayne. You know, because look, yeah. if you're showing two thirds of your face, people are going to figure this out. You yeah. know, but it, it, for a long time, it's you're easier to hide it the way it gets played. And again, it's all just in the subtleties of it. And I think that's why this film works so well is that the, it works so well on the subtle levels. And you catch these things more times you watch it, and you get engrossed in it. But now I'll tell you, the first time through on this, I think it's a blur. I think if you're able to keep up with the end, which is very spelled out for you, that you know, you've got it kind of in in meta context, but it's mm. only in rewatching it do you get into these these uh, minute details and such.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of moments where uh, you can see the switch. There's plenty of lines where Fallon is talking to Borden, like they wouldn't say the words, "Hey, you're my twin brother." They wouldn't say that to each other, but there's certain there's so many lines where Borden says. Uh yeah the little lady, lady uh, she wants to go to the zoo I was wondering if you could take her I mean I would but you know like like the way they talk to each other in those scenes it's what yeah watching it again I got to tell you the twist in this film uh, I give so many kudos to uh, to Nolan I have never felt stupider in my life watching a movie than when all of a sudden it's revealed Fallon is also played by Christian Bale. And I was like, I've been looking at this guy the whole movie. I've seen Batman Begins, I don't know how many times. I know Christian Bale's face, and I didn't see that that was Christian Bale as well. I don't know how he did it. And like you said, Wally Pfister and everything, the costuming, the makeup, they they did it in a way that it's like not for a single second would I have guessed that that was Christian Bale as well. And uh, I got to give maybe hats off to Bale as well. Uh, and to Nolan for not for not letting Fallon speak too much. Watching it again, Fallon has one line where someone asks, you know, uh, Fallon, where do you get all this stuff? And he said, well, you know, begged, borrowed and don't ask. You watch it again, that is clearly Christian Bale's voice. And I just, it's because I wasn't looking. That's why. Yeah, and you get so lost in it that you don't look.
0: You're right. I mean, I think that's the, that's the funny thing about it is you get lost in the performance because it is so engrossing. And, and I will lay a lot of that on Bale. I think he has a way of just sucking you in. In, in a film. I mean, like The Fighter, and we'll just detour on that for a second. That's a magnificent film because it's got an unbelievable supporting cast. That's yeah. nothing against Mark Wahlberg, who I think is a good actor in his own right and stuff, but he gets buried behind Amy Adams, Melissa Leo, and, and Christian Bale yeah, <laughs> in that yeah. movie. There's nowhere else for him to breathe. So he just does his thing and it's fine. And he's, he's fine as Mickey Ward, but it's the supporting cast makes that film so amazing, you know? And, and in this film, I mean, it's a small cast really. I mean, there's a lot of people yeah. peppering in and out, but it's pretty much cutter with Angie a lot of the time, Borden Fallon with the, the women that they're involved with the daughter, the, you know, the uh, Sarah that comes in and out and dies. And then ultimately, um, you know, you have uh, Scarlett Johansson coming in as the assistant who you know, supposedly goes over the other side, all that stuff. Like It's really just around watching these men sort of work in the times that they're on screen together. It's a small, small film in terms of cast. There's not a ton of people. So in that way, it's like The Illusionist. That's the thing you know, I said the last time was that the thing that really carried The Illusionist for me wasn't Norton. It was Paul Giamatti who yeah. is was just fabulous in it. Well, it's the other way around this time. The supporters here are fine, but these two leads are are fabulous. And they're fabulous playing both sides of the coins that they have to play. I mean, they really have to play four people in the film. Yeah. I, that's a daunting task as an actor.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, great cast in this film. I think uh, having letting Nolan shoot a film where he can use an entirely British cast, with the exception of Hugh Jackman, ironically, you know, an Australian playing an American, and where everyone else is playing a British one this time. <laughs> uh, oh, Yeah, great supporting cast. Uh, yeah, like you said, small number of characters, but the little parts that are scattered throughout the film. For instance, uh, Roger Rees playing Owens, who is uh, Angier's slash Lord uh lawyer that we see in the beginning of the film that goes to Borden in prison, says, "Yeah, I want your, my guy wants your secrets." Roger Rees, that's an actor that. Uh, He's one of the best character actors working today. He's on, Anyone who's watched The West Wing, he's the British guy on The West Wing. And uh, to see him in this film is fantastic. Nolan knows, I th- he in my opinion, he is the best casting. He casts movies better than anyone. I think no one else would put Roger Rees in that role. I don't think anyone else would, no one else would have cast David Bowie as Nikola Tesla. Uh, th- that's something that Nolan, you know, is one of the best at. Who else would cast Liam Neeson as Rachel al or Heath Ledger as the Joker? It's just, no one else would think of that. Right, And he, that's, you know. he comes up with
0: these unique ways of putting his cast in the best position for them to succeed. I think that's yeah. the thing. And and we need to talk about the women in this film for a minute, because if there's one ding I'll ever lay on Nolan, is that the females in his films often get shuttled off to the side, even when they're the yeah. subject matter. Now, there is an exception to that, and I may be the only man on earth or person on earth that likes this I think Hillary Swank is grand in insomnia I think she is yeah wonderful in that movie and that movie gets downplayed for I, I don't understand the reasons why I think it's a you know Pacino is always Pacino but even yeah. he is good and is good and understated in that you know, compared to what he normally is like in films you're used to him just being insane nowadays sin of a woman and all you know devil's yeah. advocate that kind of stuff but I, yeah, he's great in it but now Hilary Swank is, a, is an example of the kind of woman that I don't know she just plays her part well and then to bring it back Piper Perabo Rebecca Hall and Scarlett Johansson are very, very fun to watch in the roles of Julia, Sarah, and Olivia. And in a lot of ways, they're thankless roles in this story.
1: They are, uh, especially uh, Rebecca Hall as Sarah Borden. This is the first time I've ever ever seen her in anything. Then I went on to see her in uh, The Town. She's a terrific actress. Uh, I would say she gives the best uh, performance by an actress in the film. She's fantastic in this movie. Her arc, the way she starts off as being in love with Borden and where she goes, where she can tell that Borden and Fallon, there's something up. And the fact that she doesn't know exactly what's going on, but she knows these two or Borden is lying to her and has been lying to her for years. With And this, this particular lie is so grand and it's pretty, it's a vicious thing to do. To your wife is because for all we know we never get it they never actually you know address this but they might have both have been sleeping with her and that alone is like you could almost see how that would drive her insane and drives her to what she does which is you know she walks into Borden's lab grabs a piece of rope and just you know smash cut to she's hung herself it's just it's a great performance
0: Oh, it's it's wonderful, and I agree with you. She's the best of them. Piper Perabo's barely in the thing. She's there to die in the in the early mm-hmm. part. And I'll say this though: I'm not a Scarlett Johansson fan. I don't think she's a particularly great actress, but in the right roles, she can be effective. She can be good if they use her correctly. I thought uh, Joss Whedon got a lot out of her in the Avengers uh, for a you know something that could have been really bad and campy she's pretty good you know shooting those nine millimeters all over new york while all that other chaos is raining (laughs) down around her she's okay in that but i liked her in this too because she is a woman who i mean she offers up to look i will go and infiltrate this guy's ranks i will sleep with him i'll do whatever to get you this thing that you want to make you happy she is so devoted to angier and And he seems so, like, okay, willing to just let her jump off the deep end. And once she realizes that he doesn't care anything about her, he's only in it for the trick and stuff, she wisely gets the hell out of Dodge. you know. And I felt bad for her. I felt like if anybody got used – well, I I won't say I felt it worse for her than I did Sarah. I think both of these men use and abuse these women, not in obvious ways, but in very similar ways. They're manipulative to them for their own –
1: Gaines. Yeah, you're right. And uh, yeah, Olivia, the character of Olivia, I think is great. I think Scarlett Johansson's performance, she does the best that she can. But whenever an American is playing a British person, I always that takes me out of it a little bit. So I always I, I can't watch V for Vendetta and watch Natalie Portman and think, as good as she is, they couldn't find a British actress to play this character. I just it's one, thing for, it's one thing for a British person playing an American, I buy it instantaneously, doesn't bother me. But whenever an American plays a Brit, I just think, I just can't get past the fact that it's like, that's Scarlett Johansson, I know she's American, and I just think, why couldn't, why couldn't she have actually played it with an American accent? Like, that's the kind of, you know, I have problems with that, but she is good, as good as she can be in this film, and a great character, and yeah, she is, uh, cl- what's the word? she's a little bit ahead of the game in uh in terms of uh let me rephrase that uh she's a little bit uh stronger than sarah uh like she's the person who will say like she'll go from one side to the other because the other side is mistreating her sarah doesn't know what to do olivia it's like she's the person who will say you know screw you and go to the other side uh well that's part what I liked about it. And part of that is Sarah doesn't know what's being done to her. Yeah. And
0: until when she finally does learn it's so damaging to her that I mean she hangs herself. Yeah. You know, I mean how how terrible and tragic, right? You know, Olivia yeah. on the other hand is more resourceful and realizes she can get on with somewhere else in life and let's just call it out too and nothing against rebecca hall scarlett johansson's a beautiful woman she plays a beautiful woman in this film she wouldn't have trouble finding another job as a as a magician's assistant you know sarah was lucky to have found borden when she did right i mean that was just kind of a it was a random thing she was at one of his shows and her kid got upset at the disappearing bird (laughs) you know and i mean that that was the end she would have a hard time you know going out and finding yet another one you know what i mean like that's yeah. I, and i don't think that's i'm not trying to slide her anyway again i want to make that clear but I, there's no doubt that is what nolan is playing with here is that the reason these women react the way they do is because of how they feel in their situations you know olivia knows she's got elsewhere she can go she can make it sarah doesn't see any other way out and so she hangs herself yeah and and we need to. we talked around him a little bit i do want to talk about tesla and i want to talk about the bit and it's a small role but this whole bit about this cloning machine and such i mean what an amazing idea if you're going to introduce sci-fi in a period piece you know why i mean we've talked about the you know the real tesla and things you couldn't have found a better person to hang that kind of thing on one he's a Person, not many people know anything about anyway. And what they do know about is that he was almost a, ma- a magician in in his own right. Like he did things that were just unheard of at the time, and and his ideas for stuff were so far ahead. I mean, he had ideas for things like cellular communication, and I mean, stuff that we have today, Tesla was dreaming up, you know, in the 1800s. So, I, 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 the idea of putting that visionary in here was great, but. All of it to me hinges on the fact that David Bowie, like I said earlier, can just play an alien <laughs> and, and do it with such subtlety that it's you can't take your eyes off of him when he's on the screen,
1: oh yeah, like I said, to insert Nikola Tesla into a story like this the way they do it's like i don't know if that's in I mean I haven't read the book by Christopher priest uh this movie's based on I don't know if Nikola Tesla's in there, but whoever came up with the idea of putting Tesla. In in the middle of this story, uh, that's fantastic. I haven't seen a better example of that where a historical figure pops in to a piece of fiction like this. And yeah, David Bowie uh, doesn't really have too many scenes, but what he I mean, you know, he's one of the more he's one of the most watchable people in the world, uh, David Bowie, and he's a fantastic actor. I really would love it if he did more. Did, was cast in more movies. I think of him. Like he's he's a hilarious guy too. Anyone who's seen extras knows this guy is one of the funniest people, one of the most funny, and no one else and no one knows it. Uh, uh, actors, and yeah, he's he's a great character actor. Surprisingly good. I've heard a few people criticize his voice in this film. It's like because you can't tell at all where this guy is from. You can't tell whether he's from Germany or if he's from Russia. If he's from South Africa. You can't tell what the hell this, where this guy is from.
0: Well, he's, yeah. he's Croatian by way of France and then New York. I mean, that's, yeah. that's Tesla, and you know it was intentionally vague. And I think the idea was, that, you know, Eastern European is what you're supposed to get oh, yeah. off of it. And I think he does that. I'm with you. Bowie is one of those guys, though, that I'm glad he only pops up in things here and there because it makes you appreciate him more
1: and enjoy what
0: he is and i'm not a huge fan of his music i think some of it is just not my taste but i won't deny the fact that the man is a creative force and has been for decades and when he is on film and he does films he chooses roles that intrigue him in some way and i think whatever nolan said to him that sold him on this one it must have been a heck of a sell Uh, you know it's, it's wonderful to watch we talked about the end of it and the reveal i how did you like the ultimate end, though? Of how it worked out that you know one of them went to to prison and was executed for supposedly murdering uh, one, and then as we, we turn out, that's not the case. But the you know the Andrea that's living is um, murdered by the uh, the other twin that's still alive.
1: Yeah, we were t- in that with the illusionist. We talked about that particular revenge fo- plot being elaborate. Well, that is. It- pales in comparison (laughs) to the intricacy and what you have to go through for the revenge plot of for angier's revenge on borden it involves this but this cloning machine it involves the you know the setup of yeah the entire it looks like angier coming back to london to do this performance involving the machine it looks like he only did it to set up borden uh to frame him for his murder, that is as elaborate as it gets, and is a great revenge plot. And yeah, the whole reveal. Uh, were you gonna say something?
0: Well, I was gonna say I think that's exactly why he came back and did the one last big show or whatever. I think yeah. it was twofold: one, he wanted to set up Borden for his death, and I think he wanted Cutter to know here's how I've here's how I finally figured out how to do this thing. This is what I've i figured out, and the whole cloning bit. And let me ask you this: is it's the the original Angier has been dead a long time, right? These are just clones of himself that are still living, but they mm. they don't degrade any over time. Like, is that what we're supposed to understand about the clones here? Is that there's no? It's not like multiplicity with Michael Keaton. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. But every yeah. clone's a little less, or it's just one part of his personality. It's not perfect, but like it's exact
1: perfect replica every time. It is. Uh, I would say, yeah, it is just an exact replica transported few feet in one direction uh yeah that all of a sudden like in the last you know 45 minutes they throw that at you so quickly they don't give you time to think about the intricacies of hold on he's cloning himself what is the clone is the clone like what does that mean because i think of uh one of the better x-men characters a multiple man who can clone himself uh and Infinite number of times, and I think they did a story where it's just he forgot about all the times he cloned himself, and there's plenty of, and there's several versions of him living just elsewhere, and uh, that kind of you know, that is uh, part of this movie is uh, he clones himself. Now we don't see how many times he clones himself. Maybe he cloned himself and even even more than we think, but yeah, he clones himself.
0: Well, enough time, enough times that there's you know, he's done enough times that he became famous for that trick ultimately. You know, for yes. having an, a better show than what Borden and Fallon had, and and for you know he did it up to the point that he was supposedly dead from it, you know yeah. that that's that's what happened. And I don't know, I I thought that it was a total revenge plot. That's how, that's why he came back to do this one show was to get him, but in the end, he gets his own come up uh, comeuppance, and yeah. like I said, you see Borden walking out of that theater at the end, and Cutter's there on this, you know, uh, street to meet him with his daughter, and just shake, you know, gives him a nod, and that's yeah. it, you know, I thought, and that's why I told you earlier, I think Cutter set him up on that, you know, once he knew the truth, and he was so sickened by it, that he let him in, he's like, well, here's where he is, you know, you can go find him down here, and, you know, do what you need to do, so. It's a fabulous end to what has been a very
1: interesting film. And I definitely got to highlight my favorite part of that reveal is at the beginning of the film, when Julia dies, Borden at the funeral tells a story of how uh, he heard about a sailor who fell into the water, tangled in the sails, and it took him five minutes to cough, and he lived, and they asked him, so what's drowning like? And he he said it was like going home. Angier hears that, and I'm convinced... Angier based his entire plot on that one instance of hearing that's what drowning is like. Because that is why he sets it up so that in the show, he clones himself and he dropped and, you know, the clone is sent elsewhere and he drops into a tank of water and drowns. And I think the only reason he did that is because he doesn't know how brutal it is to drown. He doesn't, cause he doesn't get to see it. He doesn't want to see it. Uh, he just, th- he just thinks that, you know, you drop into a body of water and you fall asleep. He doesn't <laughs> know how horrible it is. So, and one of my favorite, my favorite, uh, moment in the movie is when, uh, Michael Caine is saying, you know, I told you once that a guy drowned, a guy almost drowned. Uh, and you know, he talked about what it was like and Andrew's like, yeah, he said it was like going home. And, uh, Cutter says, I lied. He said it was agony. And he walks away. And that, yeah. that, that's, that says a lot about Cutter there, is that he told that story at the funeral just to make Angier feel better. Uh, he didn't want to make it even worse that, no, your wife died in agony. Uh, and so that reveal at the end when he says, no, I, I lied. It was, it's agony. You've yes, been sir. killing yourself in the worst way possible this whole time.
0: Exactly. I mean, I can I can it's one on my top list of ways to go out that I would like to avoid yeah. if I could. I mean, I think most people one of their biggest fears is of drowning. So yeah, I I love that reveal too. It's a fabulous cap to the end of this. And it was the last oh, yeah. shot we see, and I, I think it's it's not in, in context. I think it's one of those you know famous flashback things that Nolan likes to do. And it's the look, that horrified look of the, the Hugh Jackman clone or whatever in the tank, drowned and dead. Yeah. You know, as that building burns around it. That's just amazing uh, to see. Currently, that is great.
1: Go ahead. Although, uh, Just a quick note. Uh, on Nolan's part, I think what he screwed up with is I don't know why <laughs> Angier used a new tank for every body. If they're just floating in a, t- a tank of water, why they didn't just use the same tank for all, you know, 20, uh, performances.
0: <laughs> I don't know either. Well, yeah. That's interesting to know.
1: I don't know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I
0: don't know what they did with the bodies, but yeah. I'm so but satisfied it's... with it. I don't want to know. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Kurt, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give our final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for the prestige?
1: <clears throat> all right. Now, Like I said, I saw this uh, film for the first time in 2006. Loved it on the night. I thought that was fantastic. I looked up the reviews of this film. It has 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics, it was mixed reviews at the time. I was like, I can't believe everyone didn't love this movie. It has since become a favorite. It's on IMDb's top 250. I think it's in the top 100 right now. Anyway, uh, I love this film. As I said with The Illusionist, I love... Any movie that deals with the subject of magicians. Not wizards and so on, but like actual the guys who do this stuff. I mean, I'm still waiting for a great Houdini movie. Uh, And this thing is, you know, this movie is perfect in a depiction of a profession we just don't see much on film. Because it's like, well, how do you make a guy, you know, pulling a rabbit out of a hat and that's all he's doing? How do you make that interesting? How do you make that cool? Nolan does that. Uh the the series of twists there isn't just one twist there's like five different twists along the way throughout the film in the middle of the film the beginning of the film the end of the film that are each one is better than the next uh uh and yeah this film i would say i want to say my favorite nolan films are his batman films i would say apart from those this is my favorite Christopher Nolan film. Didn't mention the music by James, uh, not, no, by uh, David uh, Julian, who did the music for uh, a Memento, I think. Great score. Look up, there's if you just Google scariest music ever, you'll get a piece <laughs> of you'll get a piece of music from the Prestige, and it's like I thought scariest music ever. And then I listen to it, and it's ten minutes, and it's like by the end of the ten minutes, you're like Jesus Christ, that's that's, that's that is some scary music. Great looking film, the the the, the cinematography by Wally Pfister, Oscar nominated cinematography and the Oscar nominated art direction. This is one of the best looking period pieces I've ever seen, uh, and the intricacy of the plot and the characters, everything about this film, I love. One of my favorite films of all time. I absolutely give this movie an extra large popcorn.
0: I'm going to join you in that extra large popcorn. And for all the reasons we've stated here as we've gone along, this is just a fabulous film, but I understand why it has the ratings it has. Cause I don't think this is something you can get on the first pass through. And I think had this film not had been made and had been what it was, I don't think a film like inception would have ever been accepted the way it was and should be by the way, in film lexicon. But that film doesn't get made if this one doesn't work somewhere, and this is a yeah. you know a different one to do in between the Batman films, you know I mean and Nolan has done this now you know he he did it, uh, Batman Begins he did this he did Dark Knight and then there was Inception and then uh, Dark Knight Rises is coming now his next thing you know Interstellar we'll have to see what that is but yeah. uh, you know again I think all of his films lead up to the next one they lead you down a path if you will and this one's right in there and I'm with you it's one of my my favorites of his. It's one of the best films I've ever seen and it's definitely one worth rewatching and it it pays to rewatch this. This is the kind of thing you can watch and get more and more out of it every time. That's the problem with twist films, you know, once you know the twist, that's kind of it, right? It's you have to go back and say is there anything else there to keep me going? And the game here is to play is, you know, when does Andrew start cloning himself? And is there any difference between them and when is it bored and when is it Fallon? How can you tell the difference? Can you you know, who can you follow through and watching it from those different perspectives each time is a grand experience. So this is a fabulous film and uh, you know, I love the illusionist too, but of the two, I would say this is the better one. And I think it's because the Mm. performances are great. I think the direction is fabulous. Nolan's one of the best directors working nowadays and it's just hard to beat. So I I would put the prestige above the illusionist and I give it extra large popcorn as
1: well. Yeah, I absolutely would say between this and The Prestige, for me, it's – I mean, between the, the Prestige and The Illusionist, for me, it's a very easy pick. Uh, I like The Illusionist the more we talked about it on that on, on that podcast. But The Prestige wins by a mile. I just think this movie does things I've never seen before, haven't seen again since. Like I said, some of the best twists – like I said, Usual Suspects has a twist that made me feel stupid for not seeing it. This one tops that in terms of how did I not see – that Christian Bill was on this, is in the same scene twice. Don't know how uh, he did that. Kudos to the editors, to uh, the cinematographers, and to Christopher Nolan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kurt has been a. a, a- let me do that again Kurt it's been a blast talking about these two films with you as we've started our Hollywood Doppelgangers retrospective and you and I will catch up again and talk about things like Ed TV and the Truman Show and who knows what else we can come up with this is going to be a long series is what I plan for us to to do for a good while to come but folks you can find more episodes in the archive section of our website com slash movies you can also find a link to the Art of Slaying our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective where episode by episode Brian and I have gone through and reviewed that show and a lot
1: of extras there. And then Kurt, you can also find a link to the Fabish Factor. Oh, yeah, absolutely! I got to invite everyone to listen to the Fabish Factor film podcast. We talk about film and TV on occasion. I can't recommend enough our Game of Thrones podcast. We did a game of we did we covered all of season one, all of season two. A season three show is on the way. Can't say when, but we you can't expect uh, a massive show on season three of game of thrones we covered the 2012 oscars we covered the alien series and we covered we're going to start doing something now where uh, i'm going to pick more or less random years just to cover my favorite films uh, and a co-host's favorite films of those years just to cover as many i just just to talk about as many films as possible so absolutely uh look for the favish factor film podcast and the favish factor film group on facebook where we have very much the same discussions just uh via text as opposed to uh, in front of the mic absolutely great discussions always you can also
0: find links to the Continuous Play uh, Facebook page and our Twitter account follow us give us a review on iTunes let us know what you think what do you prefer the illusionist the prestige what do you like about them and let us know if you agree or disagree with any of the points we've made we always appreciate interacting with the audience until next time for Kurt I'm Jay thanks for listening to Filmstrip
1: thank you for listening to Filmstrip all content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is a property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.